Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy. Biden would terminate our recovery, delay the vaccine, prolong the pandemic, and annihilate Florida's economy with a draconian, unscientific lockdown. That's what he wants to do, lock it down. Lock it down, everybody. And you know what? If you don't feel good about going out, stay. Relax, stay. You know the risk groups. You know the older people. See, fortunately, I'm not an old person. I'm very young, and I'm in such perfect shape. Right? I'm in such great shape. Yeah. One thing with me, the nice part, I went through it. Now they say I'm immune. I can feel, I feel so powerful. I'll walk into that audience. I'll walk in there, I'll kiss everyone in that audience. I'll kiss the guys and the beautiful women and them. Everybody, I'll just give you a big fat kiss. Okay, well, (laughs) it's going to take a while to get that one out of my dream journal. I am going to welcome our new sponsor for those going to a Trump rally, spacesuitwarehouse.com. All the right gear and all the right prices. We are doing today a Senate spectacular. Uh, Axe is on assignment. He'll be, we're doing a switcheroo. He'll be Thursday. So I am pleased to be here with my pal and co-host, the great Robert Gibbs. Hey, Robert. Mike, how are you? I, uh, I, listening to that clip, it's like the circus is back in town. Yeah. And you can smell it. Uh, (laughs) it's, it's awful. It's awful. But today we're going to do the race. We're going to do what's going on, but we're doing one of our most popular episodes again a look at the senate races and we had to get the best and and tell tell the good uh, hackaroos about our guest she's way above a hack she is uh there's like three grades above that and uh she is the incomparable amy walter the national editor of the cook political report uh we are so thrilled amy to have you uh and to pick your brain on uh these races three weeks out well, you guys, I'm so excited to be back. As I said, the biggest boost I've gotten to my Q rating was coming on Hacks on Tap. I mean, I've gotten more people came out of the woodwork to say, hey, I heard you on the show. So, of course, I have to come back. Well, we're, we're happy to <laughs> have everybody. you. And, and by the way, you're now huge across the world. I actually stumbled upon our statistics and in the Congo. In China, in the UK, Canada, we're uh, the, 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 we have set the globe afire here with uh, hacks on tap. So, <laughs> thank you for thank you for joining us. All right, well, Robert, why don't we start uh, with a quick kind of uh, what's going on in the race? And I guess we got to go to the big news today, yesterday, and tomorrow, which are the Senate confirmation hearings on Donald Trump's nominee to the Supreme Court, Judge Amy Coney Barrett. Do we think this will mean anything in the race, or both sides have a flag to wave and? There'd be some noise and then on to the rest of it, the big stuff that's dominated so far, COVID, you know, the economy and Trump madness. Yeah, my, my sense is that this isn't going to move the needle in a huge way, except I do think it is generating a large amounts of enthusiasm, particularly on the Democratic side. I'm, I'm sure as well on the Republican side. But I think for all those that that looked at the polls and saw concern around enthusiasm around Democratic voters, that that's probably been taken care of. Uh, it's put uh, an, an issue that, that was talked about a lot in 2018 and, and, and in 2020, but back into the forefront with health care, the Affordable Care Act, 
with the case in front of the Supreme Court. I will say I'm I am amazed at watching Republicans try to convince the world that a case in front of the Supreme Court brought by 18 you uh, uh 18 attorneys general throughout the Amer- uh, throughout America is not a serious case and will have no impact on the Affordable Care Act. I, I, it, it is a it, gymnastics and jujitsu that we've never seen before. Amy, go ahead. What, 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 do you, what do you think the impact of this uh, classic Washington uh, slappy fight we're having right now is going to be? I've been fascinated by a couple of things. The first is um, that Republicans looked at what happened in 2018 with Kavanaugh And I think it was true that it did generate a a tremendous amount of enthusiasm among their base. And they said, well, maybe this can happen once again, let's, um, uh, if Democrats overreach, if they make this about Amy Comey, uh, Coney Barrett, the person, not the nominee, and we get into sort of the drama and, and the culture war stuff once again. But what I found, fascinating about it is that they basically telegraphed that, right? To say, I dare you, Democrats, go ahead, raise her religion. And Democrats are like, okay, we're, we're not going to do that. We're just, we're going to talk about healthcare. And they're like, okay, well, but when you raise her religion, we're, we're going to let yeah. you know. And they're like, oh, okay, well, what about the Affordable Care Act? So um, look what, what um, the other piece in 2018 that Republicans had going for them was that, you know, Trump, kind of put himself in the background. He was in some ways already in the background because he wasn't on the ballot. But that moment, right, where it did become this sort of cultural zeitgeist um, with, you know, your conservative and Trumpian and you were finally united around what you saw Democrats doing to Brett Kavanaugh, right? It brought those two sides together. And I do think it did help boost at the very end some of those Senate and House races that were flagging. Uh, This time around, Donald Trump, as the intro that you all uh, came in on, uh, reminds us is that he's not going to let the Supreme Court hearings ever uh, overshadow what he wants to do, which is the rallies and the I beat COVID. And I I just, I, I, I can't believe that we are three weeks from an election, and instead of taking on Joe Biden, the president seems to think that he should be in a fight with Dr. Fauci, who is probably one of the more popular people in American life right now. I mean, that's the like the last person you want to be getting in a fight with right now. Yeah, he's going after Jesus next week to really close the campaign on a big, big boom. Um, yeah, I, I have the same view, I think. In some of the Senate races, which we're going to talk about, there might be a marginal impact one way or the other. But uh, the Dems have shown a little discipline. They they learned the lesson from last time, and now it's trying to punch through the ACA. So, Robert, let me throw something at you. This will get us both, if you agreed, put on 30-day you know, suspension from the American Pundit and Windbags Union, but I, I'm going to try it anyway. Despite the fact that I'm behind on my dues, so it's okay. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you're already on double (laughs) secret probation. So, despite the fact that almost every day the president does something that in a normal campaign would like shock and horrify people, et cetera, et cetera, we've had years of that. It's just the tempo's gone up. In many ways, this race has become, dare I say it, boring. Because as far as things really changing, as far as the kind of perils of Pauline, Will it flip one way? It's been dug in at seven, eight, nine points for what feels like forever. And with the exception of a few state contests, mostly Florida, which is a tight battle, most of it is it's like watching a huge 
plain land. There's just not a lot of excitement. It's kind of locked in. Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. And I, I keep thinking every time we record these, I've got to think of a new word for stable to make it sound <laughs> like something has happened in the race, but still hasn't. And, you know, to the point on, on discussing the Supreme Court, I think we we think every time there's a moment, we think, OK, it hasn't moved, but now this will finally dislodge it. And I think you saw some national polling, the NBC poll, the CNN poll, other polls have flipped from seven, eight, nine, you know, to the 12, 14, 15 range. I think they'll come back and settle. But I think, you know, the, the name of the game is stability. I, I, I think in the end, uh, you know, people have have viewed this presidency. They have viewed Trump. They've come to a conclusion. Uh, and, you know, absent Trump changing any of that. And let's be clear, I, I would have bet a large sum of money that he would have figured out how to be in that debate this week. Right. Seventy five million people in an audience is, is something that I didn't think that moth could 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 walk away from. But he has. I will say if you're a Democrat and you have this like continual fear that every time we say this, it's just the 2016 redux. And we'll get to some of that in the mailbag. I think the one structural thing that you see in some of these state contests and even in some of the national polling is Joe Biden's favorability is sneaking up. Right. It's it's, you know, in in the New York Times polling yesterday in in Michigan, it was 54 in Wisconsin. It was 55 nationally in some of these polls. It's getting up to 52, 53. I think that is is a significant number underneath the numbers. But I agree with you. Um, it's boring. It's stable. Uh, and very little in American politics is uh, is either boring or stable. Amy. Yeah. Are you bored? <laughs> Yeah, I'm kind right. of I'm kind of bored. I'm I'm to the point where I'm bored, except in Florida. I think you're right. I mean, the fact that at the beginning of the year, the NBC Wall Street Journal poll had this race: fifty Biden, forty-four Trump. In September, it was fifty-one Biden, forty-three Trump. Right. So that's Aha. COVID. Right there, we go. We moved it. We moved the race. Um, and and now it has, of course, opened big in the immediate wake of the debate and, and his COVID diagnosis. The one thing that is the big outlier then, because Robert, I think you're right, we, we always go fall back on, but 2016, but 2016. Um, so let's, let's now get ourselves into what 2020 has been defined by, and that's uncertainty and things that we can't control. And one thing we can't control, obviously, is COVID and its outbreak. And what I am most worried about is, um, what happens, as we're already starting to see in states where COVID starts to spike, people say, I don't know that I'm going to go stand in line for three hours with a bunch of people who may be sick. Um, polling places start to close down, right? Because poll workers call in and say, you know what, I, I, my, uh, you know, I want to see my mom at Thanksgiving. And, you know, my husband said, I can't do this. It's not, you know, it's not safe. There are still those uncertainties, which is harder because for people like us, we want to be talking about the strategy right now of the campaigns and what the messages are and what the issues are. There are no issues in this campaign. There are no <laughs> policies in this campaign. It's a personality um, test on, on Donald Trump, but there are still uncertainties. And for those of us who do this for a living, like, I can't, we can't control COVID. And even on, you know, these absentee ballots as a campaign, 
you're doing all you can to make sure your voters are turning in their ballots and you're tracking the ballots and you've got a sense of what your universe is and you're modeling and doing all that. But, you know, you can't predict what happens if in Philadelphia, as we know, where they have brand new voting machines, or the Philadelphia suburbs where they have brand new voting machines and those things break down and folks who are standing in line for six and a half hours in the pouring rain, right? Like those are things to me that make this, that's the one instability, I would say. Add to that the fact, as you say, that, you know, when the race is kind of locked in and most people think they know how it's going to turn out, then the poll watchers start thinking, you know, it's not up to American democracy for me to be there all day or somebody, wow, nine hours, nine hour wait. And you see it in this, you say in the spike in early and absentee voting, but you start to wonder in a, in a campaign without a lot of outcome drama, if do people in systemically volunteers start dropping off. And I, I'm with you on Philly. I think uh, if I have one prediction to make, it's that, that Pennsylvania is going to be the new Florida as far as bumpy, slow returns. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I, I will say, but you're struck also by, you know, early voting opening yesterday in Georgia, and 126,000 people showed up to vote early mm. yesterday. Some of the lines, you, you know, look, I, I think if, if some of those people had waited in line only six hours, they would have gotten a whole six hours back because a lot of them were waiting in line 11 or 12 hours. So it, I, I agree with you. There's the great unknown is how this race will be conducted. It's always a little nerve wracking even when there's not a giant global pandemic, <laughs> right. uh, that that all of these different states and localities knit this stuff together. And there's a lot of dirty tricks. And Murphy, out where you are, you know, the Republicans in California have set up their own ballot boxes to to they say to collect Republican votes so that they can turn them in. Uh, you know, the 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 dirty tricks uh I I I feel like are going to be um even more interesting and creative this year. Oh yeah, yeah. Trump is Trump has opened up the sewers. The problem with the Republican Party is, in many places, they've gone from being Republicans to college Republicans. And I say that with affection, as an old CR. But we used to, we were, you know, we were twenty drunk and chasing girls. So we didn't always have the greatest judgment <laughs> about some of the political hijinks uh, we were up to. But there are normally adults around to say, "You clowns, get out of here." Um, now some of these state parties have that mentality. So you have dumbass things like that. And I mean, by the way, just a, a both a plug and a, and a, a spark of fury here, these pictures coming out of Georgia of Americans waiting 11 fucking hours to vote. I mean, it's unbelievable. What, what is this Belarus? I mean, it is just stunning to me. And in a politics of any honor, people be resigning. So I want to give a plug to my friend, Phil Rosenthal, he was the guy we had on the show, talked about eating old rotten eggs from his TV show. He's a hackeroo. He's doing a great thing with Chef Andreas from World Kitchens. You can find it on the Internet and give money. I did to send food trucks to polling places with these insane lines to kind of give people a little help uh, because it's so un-American. The one thing, though, Mike, that I will say, I do think now, and, and this goes also to what Robert had said, I do think the interest in voting everywhere is so intense and normal people, not hacks like us, um, are so invested in voting. And it's almost like um, the first day of opening polling is like opening day uh, in sports or, you know, the people who stand in line at the Apple store, right? I, I, I've never 100% understood that either, like why you would stand right. in the Apple store line when it's like, you know, in like five days, you can get this. Yeah, there's always online. next week. Yeah, but like, <laughs> but I need to be there, and so 
if I, I, I sort of saw that too as a sign of like, wow, this intent, like we're going to see numbers in this election like we've never seen before, including in places that, don't, you know, like, and this is where the worry would be if I were a Republican is the intensity clearly is, is there um, for Donald Trump, but the anti-Trump intensity is so strong that, you know, you're probably going to see lines in Missouri. You're going to see lines in Idaho. You're going to see, you know, you're going to just see this everywhere. And if you're an incumbent Republican, even in a district that Trump carried, you should be just a little bit nervous that, you know, the unexpected could happen. Oh, yeah. You've got two bad nightmares. Intensity, your troops are intense, but so are theirs. And demographically, in many places, most places, net, net, there are more of them than you. So when you have when you're demographically out leveraged and the other side has intensity, it's a complete nightmare. Well, let's get out of what's happening now. One final quick question: What's our debate update? I think on one level, Trump, though probably took heavy medication, could talk himself out of a town hall because he can't be a screeching ape there. But one last debate. I guess the commission is kind of shut down now. But uh, do we think Trump will kind of surrender to the last proposal and try for the final debate? What? How do we handicap that? You know, my guess is he shows up for that last debate, but I would not at all be shocked if we have seen the last of the debates in, in this election. I, I don't think um, Trump had that great tell of he wasn't going to do a, a, a an over the computer debate uh, because they get to cut you off whenever they want to. Uh, yeah, he, he put it, out we, a statement, Robert, that he was worried if the floppy disk got jammed. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but, uh, I boom. love when they always okay. lame joke. I couldn't resist. I love when they always say the quiet part out loud. And uh, so I think, uh, you know, it, it's interesting. I think Trump believes um, the strategy of being on the trail every day uh, is going to exceed being in a debate studio. Um, I, 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 I'm not entirely sure that the American people would disagree. I don't think we learned much from that debate. And and, you know, given the way the commission has acted and how they've handcuffed or how the moderators have have acted here, I, I, it's hard to make a case for wanting to have another debate, to be all to be honest with you. You know, I mean, it, it, they're you know, they're both on Thursday and I think I'd just rather watch football yeah, or a test pattern. Amy, what do you think? <laughs> I agree with Robert's point about like strategically, it would make some sense for Donald Trump to go in there. And look, we have seen at moments where Trump can be disciplined enough for a just a window of time to force Biden on his heels, right? But it is now, if this is on the 22nd, and we'll have, what, another 5 million people who will already have voted, or a couple of, of weeks or so from the election, and, you know, to take uh, Biden from plus wherever he is and his favorables to minus 20 in one debate is not likely going to going to happen. I think he's much more comfortable and where he feels like he can make a difference is at, in the in the rally sphere. It also he just enjoys it more. Nobody cheers at a debate. Nobody's out there, you know, you can't run into the crowd and and throw kisses and hats and all of that. <laughs> and um I, I just I again, strategically it doesn't make much sense for Trump to not want to do this. But this isn't about strategy at this point. Yeah, with Trump, it's always about ego and, and narcissism. I don't know. I think it'll be hard for him not to jump in the spotlight, but he, he's probably kind of a wounded uh, 
wounded animal about, oh, they're so mean to me when I debate, it's all rigged, so maybe he'll just sulk his way through a bunch of those rallies. Now, let's talk about the other big topic, and we have the right person here for that. Amy, the Senate races. What do we, we want to start with kind of the squishy Republicans in trouble and work our way out? How do we want to do this? You know, but before we get into to these, I, I, the one thing I want to just bring up, I mean, the amazing amazing amount of money that these races are raising. I'm, I'm, by the way, Mike, your accountant called and said, what a terrible decision it was for you to stop doing Senate races. Oh, believe Um, me. Don't even get me started. Just to go into this. I mean, this, this is just last quarter's fundraising numbers, right? The Hickenlooper in Colorado raises almost $23 million. Cal Cunningham, $28 million. Teresa Greenfield in Iowa, a race that that only recently kind of popped on the radar screen raises twenty nine million dollars, and then my favorite, uh, Jamie Harrison in South Carolina raises fifty seven million dollars in a quarter. I mean, this is presidential money. I mean, what do you make of all that? It is really fascinating. I think what you're seeing is, you know, uh, in politics, it's supposed to be that every action has an equal and opposite reaction, but with Trump, what we've seen is an equal and like exponential (laughs) um, reaction, right? We've seen it in the polling data for so long that, you know, Trump has that core that they love him and shoot somebody at Fifth Avenue and all that, and they'll still be with him. But that's like 25, maybe on a good day, 30%. Mm -hmm. The, I I despise Trump with the, the fury of a thousand burning suns is up in the 40 to 50% range. And those 40 to 50%, again, to, to have people who aren't just like, yeah, I don't really like the guy, right? Versus uh, my fury for him has no end. And if that means that I write a $10 check to five Senate races, that's what I'm going to do. Those are, a, that's a lot of people. Oh, you know? yeah. Fifty percent of the of the population desperately disliking you and writing a $10 check to a Senate candidate, that starts to add up or $50 check, that starts to add up. What I'm fascinated to see, Robert, though, is, you know, what happens when Trump's no longer in office and where these donors go and where the, you know, the fundraising muscle uh, goes. And will they be there in the midterms to help some of these, especially these House candidates who are also raising eye-popping amounts of dollars um, and who did in in the midterms to hold on when, you know, Trump's not there and it's not an existential threat and Biden's, if you know, Biden, Biden wins, he's kind of slogging along and the economy's still not great and the virus still isn't beat and right. Um, so as a longer term fundraising strategy, it's a, it's a challenge. Yeah, that's where I'd be more suspicious of a return to normalcy. But this is a perfect storm because the country is basically coughing Trump up like a big orange hairball. And those spasms, which is that kind of anti-Trump majority, are empowered by how the internet has democratized fundraising. You don't have to go give a thousand bucks somebody's house. You know, you don't have an expensive direct mail campaign where it costs three bucks to raise four dollars. With this, it's almost all net. It's three clicks away. Democrats have done a great job of kind of integrating it. So if you're foolish enough to give a dollar to one Democratic campaign, believe me, you're going to hear from a hundred more. But they've made it very quick and easy. It, 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 not unlike Amazon. It's a couple of clicks and the money's sent. So They've turned the spasms of rage, as you say, into zillions of small contributions where they're making 85% or better of the money net, you know, into the campaigns. And and moments that happen 
are caught by this, like RBG's passing. All of a sudden, Shazam, a week later, there's 200 million new dollars. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, recreating that, it, it will take quite a midterm. But this trend of democratized, low-dollar digital, high-net fundraising is here to stay. It's been around for a while. I mean, back in McCain 2000, when we won New Hampshire, we literally had like a warehouse full of people running credit card machines with emails coming in because the infrastructure wasn't there to kind of convert it. Um, but it's only going to grow. And uh, uh, this could be the election that's like the new new level of it forever. And what's totally unique about this, you know, from remembering my Senate days, um, you know, amazing. Or imagine raising that kind of money and never leaving the state, never right. going to a fundraiser. Right? Yeah. You don't. This isn't Great one of those candidates. things where like, you know, you go in and you're arguing with the campaign manager and the scheduler because they're going to take the candidate on a four day swing to California and raise $4 million. This is, you're not doing anything. So it's, it's amazing. Just for the record, I'd pay $10 on a monthly basis, Murphy, just to hear how you come up with some of these lines. And just, I want to peek into the head of the coughing up of the orange fur ball. Sign me up for that $10 subscription. East European pharmaceuticals. I'll tell you the one <laughs> downside of this damn thing though, in this internet age is, so I, I'm like a, like a camera guy. So I, I'm looking at like, like stuff. And every two minutes I've got Chuck Schumer or Stacey Abrams in a 15 second video spot screaming at me about money for Senate candidates. And I have not <laughs> given, I think I gave Doug Jones and the only two Democrats I've ever given money to in a Senate candidate, Doug Jones, like a year and a half ago, uh, in his first campaign when he ran against the, the kook. And I was so disgusted with McSally that in the spirit of McCain, I gave 200 bucks or whatever it was to uh, Mark Kelly. But now I'm haunted. Chuck, Chuck Schumer has taken over my freaking computer, and it, it is my idea of the worst nightmare in the world. So I'm going to sell software to block this shit because that's where the money's going to be made. You're going to get 10,000 emails between now and Election Day, and you're going to get them like until they disconnect your, your email in like 30 years. You're totally screwed. Oh, I'm totally screwed. I, I, I'm of the old school, the old direct mail joke from the Vigory Company, Right Wing Politics. Make your uh, check out to Christians Against Secular Humanism or Cash. I miss the old direct mail con men because it was a simpler era, and at least I wouldn't have to see them on every internet site. Well, let, let's go to the races here. What do we want to start? Maybe let's, Maine or Colorado? Amy, yeah, you call start it. with, um, you know, we talked about these. We split these into kind of two tiers. So uh -huh. why don't we go through these, Amy? You know, like in that tier one of races, I think on the Democratic side, um, you know, they're looking at Colorado, Maine, and Arizona. Republicans obviously are, are looking at, at Alabama. Th these are probably the most likely races to see flip in control. And just as a reminder, as we start this conversation, the current makeup is um, when, you, when you attribute uh, independents that are caucusing with different parties, 53-47. So if somebody's got to pick up the White House in a net three seats or, or four for outright control. So walk us through that first tier of races, Amy. Yeah, I think for a long time now, there's been a consensus that on the Democratic side, Doug Jones despite Mike Murphy's contribution back in 2017. <laughs> we well, should have magical powers, but apparently not. It should, but it's an, uh, it's Alabama. It's presidential year. And again, even as the president's numbers are, are not doing great everywhere, not, not bad enough in Alabama uh, to, to help Doug Jones. So if you take that as a you know negative on the ledger, 
that means Democrats need to find four seats to get a net of three. And Arizona, Colorado, and Maine always are up there. For a while, it, it actually has been Arizona, Colorado, Maine, and North Carolina. I mean, North Carolina, Tom Tillis is actually technically more vulnerable than Susan Collins based just on the numbers alone. Susan Collins is better known, better established in Maine. Her numbers are better. Tom Tillis has never been able to sort of break out of the low 40s. He's been at 39% in a lot of polls that we've seen there. Um, and so, you know, he seems like he's kind of stuck. He's also not particularly well known. We know that state is prone to, to kicking out its first term senators, right? They, yeah, they tend to much. do that a lot. In Maine, they stick with their people for a long, long time. So, um, you know, the, the, the only thing that, that changed, of course, was that well, there was the sex scandal thing. The sex <laughs> Earning scandal. him, by the way, of all senators, the only reelect rated triple X by all the ratings. <laughs> I know we don't have that. We just have lean, likely, toss up. We we don't have any other categories. <laughs> you might need um, a new category if any more of uh, those text messages it, from uh, yeah. Frisky Cal come out. But the thing is, I think you guys mentioned this early on. We haven't really seen a lot of polling since this the scandal broke, and of course, this is this this came literally the same weekend that Donald Trump was taken to the hospital. And I think, you know, we have to then try to decide in a year like this, where every uh, pollster that I talk to tells me, uh, and, and, and the smart folks at the Cook Political Report, that, you know, Trump is underperforming his 2016 numbers by five to 10 points. And, you know, every state, every district, every county this is red blue whatever so that the trump drag is a significant thing right and is there any reason to believe that um the trump drag is going to be less critical than say something else that comes up and in this case a sex scandal or really effective campaign attack ads uh, by Republicans on one of these Democratic candidates. You know, uh, Susan Collins is not going down without a fight in Maine. Um, and and I just, I, I think back to 2006, um, which of course was a midterm year, and that's a little bit different, but I remember talking to Republicans at that time who were saying, I mean, everything we're throwing out there, stuff that would have killed our opponents in any other year is just not going anywhere. It's just hitting the, you know, hitting the screen and falling flat. None of the spaghetti is sticking. And I'm wondering if we're kind of at that point too, even when you have late breaking scandals like this, where, as we discussed at the beginning, opinions of the president are so hardened and yeah. are driving everything else that what voters are saying is, I know it's, it's kind of what happened in 2016, right? Like access Hollywood versus Hillary and everything that people already didn't like about her, right? And oh, the Comey thing and the WikiLeaks and oh God, I don't know which one's worse. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, those conflicted voters went to Trump. If the mood in November is we just gotta, we gotta have a clean slate. And and I've been hearing that from folks who are doing focus groups, especially in these suburban, exurban places, especially those suburban. W women who are like, look, I, 
you know, this isn't about pro-Biden. This isn't pro-Chuck Schumer or the DSCC or anything else. This is just get, just get rid of all of them. I can't deal with another four years of this. Yeah, the center races are the tail more than more than the dog. In yeah, many it's kind of a 1980s scenario in some ways like that. Yes. Let's take a minute to do an ad, and we'll be right back. You know, Gibbs. Every once in a while uh, on Twitter, people will write in and say, "Axe, you make me nauseous." But nausea's nothing to joke about. It's like getting stuck in the back of a car and you're kind of a little bit hemmed in and you just, you get that feeling and it starts in your stomach. It's not yeah, a good and, and and like you're on your way to something good, a, a celebration or party or something, and now you're nauseous and you can't get rid of it, except there is an answer now and it's called Relief Band. Tell us about Relief Band. Relief Band is the number one FDA cleared anti-nausea wristband that has been clinically proven to quickly relieve and effectively prevent nausea and vomiting associated with motion sickness, anxiety, migraines, hangovers, morning sickness, chemotherapy, and so much more. The product is 100% drug-free, non-drowsy, and provides all-natural relief with zero side effects, zero, for as long as needed. The technology was originally developed over 20 years ago in hospitals to relieve nausea from patients, but now through Relief Band, it's available to all of us. Here's how it works with Relief Band. It stimulates a nerve in the wrist that travels to the part of the brain that controls nausea. Then it blocks the signal your brain is sending to your stomach telling you that you're sick. Relief Band is the only over-the-counter wearable device that has been used in hospitals and oncology clinics to treat nausea and vomiting. If you know somebody who deals with nausea, Relief Band makes a great gift. I'm telling you, Relief Band works. We know from our own experience, we sent one to our engineer who often gets nauseous during our shows, and he reports 100% cure. Don't fall for those cheap bands you see in drugstores or on your Instagram feed. All right. Right now, Relief Band has an exclusive offer just for our Hacks listeners. If you go to reliefband.com and use promo code HACKS, you'll receive 20% off plus free shipping and a no questions asked 30-day money-back guarantee. So head to reliefband, R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D, Dot com and use our promo code HACKS for 20% off plus free shipping. Robert, what's your take? I, I just want to make one point about Susan Collins first. She is kind of remarkable because generically she should be gone, but she's hung on because she's built that brand of independence deep roots in the state. And, you know, people, Maine is fascinating because there are two congressional districts there and they're like different planets. One is a very blue 30 point, you know, Biden district. Uh, and then you get into rural Maine and it's Kentucky. It's almost a Mitch McConnell uh, uh, district. Now, Trump won it last time. This time it's looking a lot tighter. Biden may pull it off, but she's, she's been an expert straddler for a long time because she's got one foot in red state half of Maine, the other in super blue. And that's given her kind of superpowers. I still don't think she'll make it. There's just too many forces against her. But uh, the rest on the the list, if we want to handicap, uh, I, I agree. They all look dim, though. Alabama, they may hold that to single digits when they go down. Trippy would say they're going to win. Uh, and that's a hell of an accomplishment if he only goes down by six or seven points in that state. Well, I think to Amy's point, I mean, I think even in some of these really red states, you're seeing 
um, margins much, much smaller than you did four years ago. And all of a sudden putting together that coalition that, you know, that you, that it's going to have to happen. I mean, one of the things that's going to have to happen to flip control of the Senate is almost certainly Democrats are going to have to win a Senate race in a state that Donald Trump wins. Right. So you're going to have to find mm-hmm. Trump Bullock voters in Montana or, um, you know, you're you from know. Harrison voters, right? South, South Carolina, Carolina. Yeah. absolutely, and 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 that's Alaska. a dynamic that is that yeah. is 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 much even with all this money is much harder than it sounds because in 2016 we didn't have states like that. Yeah, I think if you're in North Carolina, for instance, there's there's probably some evidence on both sides to keep both sides both happy and engaged, right? There's a I, I think North Carolina surprisingly is not a well-polled state for public polls, but there's a couple out in the last couple of days that still have, including one this morning that still has um, Cunningham ahead uh, a week or so after the, the this news breaks. If I'm a Republican, the thing that, that probably, even though that same polling has Trump down in North Carolina, I, I still think, and this was true in both 2008 and in 2012 in the Obama races. I think North Carolina is a harder state to win for, for Democrats than Florida is. And, and I think that there's still going to be that gravitational pull of, or potentially that gravitational pull of even Roy Cooper winning, winning in the governor's race, you're still going to have to figure out how do you put that interesting Trump plus Cunningham coalition together in a way that's going to be important. But I think if you look at those four those four seats are, I think, the most likely to change. Which four, Robert? R- run them down for the hacker. You know, again, I think you've got Maine, um, uh, Colorado, Hickenlooper, uh, right. an, an interesting candidate, but probably uh, that race is done. Yeah, that, that's a. There aren't a lot of surveys, but that's a nine or ten points. Colorado's too hard, and Gardner's made a lot of dumb errors. Right, Arizona, which I think is an interesting election. Um, you know, I think, boy, I think the Republicans will rue the day that they have. Um, that they made Cindy McCain an activist. Uh, she is uh, she, she's she's on television nationally for Biden. Uh, I think I, I think that's going to be uh, she's going to have an interesting impact in that Senate race. But even though that's a, a state that Democrats have not depended a lot on in the, in the past, I see that thing flipping. Um, and then you know that lands probably Democrats that that would give Democrats forty nine seats. Uh, and then you because it would be these... net three with Alabama, and then you're thinking North Carolina because I would pitch Iowa as a more likely flip right now. Well, I think close. look, I think you've got to. I think this is going to come down to. I think Democrats are going to have to win either Montana, Iowa, or North Carolina to get to fifty. Right? I think you're going to be stuck on forty nine, or I can mm-hmm. see, I can see forty nine. The question is, how do I get to fifty or fifty one? And fifty yeah. is important if you win the White House. But but you know, look, I I spent. <laughs> I spent a couple of years in the White House where we had 57, 58, 59, 60 senators, and it's hard to get things done. So getting things done with 50 makes every senator uh, the king of the world. Um, but I do think those three races, Iowa, North Carolina, Montana, yep. that's that next tier of um, how do you get to 50? Right. So to go granular, Amy, why, why don't you take us on a little tour of Montana, Iowa? We kind of talked about old Cal in North Carolina. I agree the wave may be bigger than his problems, but he's definitely been slowed down a little bit. But yeah. Montana's a fascinating race. Iowa's, and then we can do South Carolina and some of the Georgia, Alaska stuff. Well, that's the thing. I don't want to get ahead of us, but Georgia is another one where 
uh, Robert, that could surprise us too on election night as tipping point. If if Ossoff is able to get the Democrat over 50 because it's a, it's a runoff state. Um, both sides now think that those two races both go to runoff, which makes my stomach hurt. Let me let me interrupt for one second. Right, just, just so, yeah, yeah. We got to explain this if we're going to go to Sorry. Georgia. So, so Ge- the, Georgia has two races. One is a special election with several candidates. Kelly 21. Leffler, uh, <laughs> who's who's vying for the endorsement of Attila the Hun on TV, uh, Warnock the Democrat, and then there's a Republican congressman, a, a strong flame throwing Trump guy named Collins. So Leffler, who has been appointed to the seat is running uh, in the Republican side of the equation against Collins in about a tie. She's clearly nervous because she was going to be the suburban, reasonable candidate. Now, again, her campaign slogan is Attila the Hun, and one of them will wind up with Warnock in a runoff in January. Then there's a regular road Senate race with Senator Perdue running for re-election, and I can never pronounce his name, Amy. It's Ossoff? Ossoff, yeah. Ossoff. And that's a fairly tight three-point race, right? Well, and, and yeah, and, and the rule is if you don't get fifty percent on election day, it's 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 in in the in the Warnock uh, Loeffler Collins race, it's the sort of jungle primary. Or there's twenty one candidates, um, but if you don't get fifty percent, it goes to a runoff. So uh, you know the one thing. <laughs> You think there's a lot of money swirling around in politics okay. now? Wait until these two races, just so we're clear. In case it's the fulcrum in January. Yeah, the runoff. The next Congress will be sworn in on January the 3rd. These races could be happening on January the 5th. And so um, to watch a couple of $100 million Senate races might might be absolutely fascinating. 100%. All right, so let's go to you know Montana. Look, this is a place that historically... While this is a red state, at least in recent history, it's come pretty close. Didn't Obama almost win Montana in 08? Yeah, we were pretty competitive there. We were, yeah. And historically, Mansfeld, it's been the most democratic of the mountain states. Yeah, other yeah, than Marcus. the Frank Church days, which had a Mormon, you know, Idaho's complicated. So the classic mountain states, Montana's had some deep. It's a classic mountain state with a lot of in-migration, et cetera, et cetera popular democratic governor you know it, it, it is it is sort of set up well and trump also underperforming from where he was in 2016. uh biden's not going to win the state but again if he gets this into single digits that that's you know we were just talking about how much you have to overperform outperform the top of your ticket um in this day and age i mean there was a time when you could outperform the top of your ticket by 10 12 points heidi heitkamp i think had the record recently where in 2012 she outperformed Obama in North Dakota by like 12 points. Um, but I just don't think we're in that era right now where you mm-hmm. can you can do that. So four or five points, maybe, maybe it's still. And, and he's well, an elected I, if I governor. I want it to be two or three points. But, um, you know, if you get it that close, the thing is that Danes, the, the Republican, doesn't have any obvious liabilities in the way that maybe some other um Republicans up this year do. His biggest liability, and I think this is true for so many of the, the Republicans who are up this year, is that, you know, he's a freshman. He's a freshman. Joni Ernst in Iowa is a freshman. David Perdue mm-hmm. uh, in Georgia. Tillis in North Carolina. They all came in, Cory Gardner, they all came in in a wave election in 2014, which is a great year. It was a good year to be a Republican. Um, so they've never had to run with the, the wind in their face. 
And for some of them, the wind is just a lot stronger. If you're in Colorado or Arizona or Maine, that wind looks a lot different than it does um, in Montana, but it's now, it's now there for him. And I do think that, you know, again, the one thing I will say about all this just sort of big picture way is if this turns out to look more like 1980, Mike, or even 2008, um, where everything breaks one way, yeah. And that's usually what happens. Like what we found yep. historically going back like 20 years, this, our Senate toss-ups, they don't break 50-50 and they don't break logically. Like we're, we're walking through this logically like, well, of course, you know the state. And if we... Right. It could be plus three or four. They could all go. It could, it could be five. Yeah. Yeah. So you could be looking at if, if 70 or 80%, which has been the norm in presidential years of the toss-ups breaking... Yeah, that's five or six seats for Democrats. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but it is it is potential. And then you just have to get into the debate about, well, which five or six are they, right, beyond the obvious yeah, ones we right, just discussed. Right. So could it be Iowa? Sure. Could it be Montana? Yeah. South Carolina? Why not? Even Alaska with, with a guy named Al Gross running against Sullivan, the Republican. And Al Gross right. is like the perfect name for a prop comic. But nonetheless, you know, there's no polling up there. It's like you count, you know, skins or something. But by all the kind of anecdotal, Gross is definitely in the hunt there. I mean, in a, in a 1980-type scenario, which I think is kind of more likely than a win-by-one, you know, if they, if they get a couple, as you're saying, Amy, that – it may pop bigger than even a race like that could go. Well, why don't we close? Cause I know you've got a time limit, uh, Amy, South Carolina, the mega fight in a Republican leaning state. Do, do I we know. think that, that hearts will stay aflame and, and Jamie Harrison has run a tremendous campaign with essentially unlimited money. Will he be able to pull it off? And how do you think the Supreme court hearings, uh, work for Lindsay who's got a lot of visibility in it and South Carolina, of course, not being, the Upper West Side of Manhattan on the life issue. So how, how do we kind of, what, what's our Vegas handicap now on, on that race that's tied in the last poll, but I don't it think is. there's been a poll in October yet. Right. And it's also a state where, you know, Trump is, once again, he's underperforming in 2016. I think you have um, a couple of factors here. One is the turnout piece and, a, and the potential uh, for African-American turnout, Democratic turnout, to be in places that, to, to hit, a, hit a number we've never seen before, right? There hasn't been a reason to have um, that level of turnout in South Carolina. So that could surprise us. We also know that the suburbanization of Charleston and uh, even Greenville and Rock Hill, which is basically the Charlotte suburbs now, is also, you know, this isn't, this is, uh, yeah, it's the new White South Carolina. Suburban. Yeah, this is a new new sort of suburban South Carolina, like we've seen in Charlotte and, you know, uh, other parts of the Atlanta suburbs. Um, it still uh, is, you know, it, it, what where you see Jamie Harrison, he's like at 48%, 48%. It's that, you know, it's like losing those last five pounds, right? It seems really easy on paper, but it's a lot harder the, the last five are a right, lot harder right, the than last the first mile. ten, yep. and uh, and so you go. How does he get over that? We know that there's a third party candidate. There's a libertarian candidate in this race who has officially announced that he has dropped out as endorsed Lindsey Graham, but he's still on the ballot. So, what percent of the vote does that candidate get? Could be enough, you know, to tip this race. 
And and here's the great thing about having raised $57 million in a quarter, <laughs> right? One, you've got Jamie Harrison spending, you know, seven, $8 million a week on television. Um, and to your point on the libertarian candidate, you know, there was stuff that popped up on Twitter of, you know, Jamie Harrison paying for digital ads around the libertarian candidate about, you know, he's too conservative for South Carolina, which obviously <laughs> is, uh, um, you know, is uh, the, technically the, impossible. Right, exactly. But the dog whistle. And I do think that suburbanization that, that you talk about, Amy, is so important. I mean, we saw this in um, in a congressional race in uh, in 2018 it, with um, uh, in the Charleston area. Uh, that is another really important race. You know, I, I this this seems like one of those ones where, as you said, if it gets to four or five, we look back and say, oh, yeah, that made a lot of sense. Right. And 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 you may see. You know, even places like Kansas or Texas or Kentucky get more interesting if we get to that point. I still think you've got that the tipping point seems to be to be around that Iowa race. You know, I, I, don't, I, I've, I, I have not seen a poll. I've, I haven't seen a Joni Ernst ahead poll in a long time. And the internal Republican polling is the same. She's down a couple. And that, to me, is the most flippable of the second-tier ones. But I've, I've got yeah. to interrupt because we're running out of time with one last race, which, like South Carolina, is an incumbent in some trouble with a very charismatic African-American challenger. And this time, as the world turns upside down, it's a Republican challenger, John James in Michigan, against Gary uh, Slowpitch Peters, the incumbent. He is ahead anywhere from eight to nothing, depending on which poll you believe. Repubs have some excitement about Michigan. I think with what's going on at the top of the ticket, there's some headwinds there, but it's a bit of a race. Uh, Amy, Robert, what do you think about Michigan? Is there a spark of life there for James? Murphy, you know Michigan. It's yeah. James is going to lose, <laughs> but, but I'm trying to give the guy a, a equal time. Yeah. I know. Listen, it, it feels a little bit, you know how um, it, both parties have these states where they're these like, you can get your candidate up in the polls into the high 40s. Yeah, you get to your 47. And, you know, yeah. James did great in 2018. You're at 46, 47. The incumbent's at 47. Um, you say, look at this thing. It's tied. But then you realize that that's actually your ceiling. Um, two things helping Peters right now, of course, Biden, and they do have a, 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 for the first time, like a lever there. You can go and, and vote uh, one party. Um, so he should be helped by that. I mean, I think that James has been a very good candidate. Not only that, he's one of the handful of Republicans who's actually been able to match Democrats in that kind of online fervor of fundraising. Right. Fox um, star, too. Yeah. So he's, you know, he's he's going to come out of this no matter what with a, a really bright future wherever he wants wants to go if, if he doesn't win. But I think that it just is one of those places where you get get to that number. It looks really impressive. And then you stop. Yeah. Two points short. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I think, too. I agree. Murphy, look, I, you've got more missioning experience than anybody. But it reminds me a little, look, I I think what what will help Peters immensely is running in a presidential year, right? And and it will, I think in that poll that had it really close, it had black voters is not as excited about Peters. My, My hunch is that they come home, they come home late. It reminds me, and I'm not trying to bring this up just to poke you, um, reminds me a little of 2000, um, 
when when Debbie Stabenow, obviously she was at that Slowly point. Slowly I turned step by step. <laughs> We're talking about the Spence Abraham race, uh, in, uh, yeah. uh, where my yeah. client yeah. Spence, who was a, a freshman running for re-election, lost, particularly after the Bush campaign pulled out of the state. But don't get me started. But no, you're right. The top of the ticket thing is huge. And and in that race, you know, there was a, we could talk a long time about that race. But I mean, I think in the end, that Al Gore effort to win that state definitely pulled Debbie Stabenow over the line by not that many, probably 75,000 votes. And I think that's essentially what Biden ends up doing for Peters. You know, it, it is surprising, as like you said, I think it is one of the ones that has popped up on the radar screen late. He's been a... Uh, a the challenger has gotten a lot of publicity. He's even walked away a bit from Trump in in some of the stuff. Uh, not many of the Senate candidates are doing that, and he's lived to tell the tale. Yeah, he's impressive. And again, this is one, if this were an off-year election, because Peter's, Senator Peters, the incumbent, has been asleep. So he he's kind of left the back door open, and it's perfect for a heist, but then Hurricane Trump came in. And I think this is one that'll be close. And it's not, there could be an upset there, but if it's a wave dem election, He's just not going to be able, James is not going to be able to handle the floodwaters. So, Amy, where can our hacker ruse follow you to keep track of all these fascinating Senate races? Let's do the plug. Well, that is a great question. You can go to (laughs) cookpolitical.com, get the latest. My colleagues, Jessica Taylor, who covers the Senate and governors, David Wasserman, who covers the House. And we have something called the Swingometer, for those of you who are junkies, and I know you are because you're listening to this. David Wasserman and his quant friends have put together uh, uh, an interactive tool where you can make predictions about what you think the uh, turnout and also the composition of the electorate is going to look like. And it will send you back a electoral college map based on that. It is so cool. And a big kudos to him. And I th- part of that NBC News was involved because yeah. you can look at the changing demography of the country, which I've been harping on for 10 years, which is a huge factor. And they've really put a tremendous tool together. I highly recommend you can spend wonderful hours there on that. Yeah. Well, Amy Walter, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks to you all. Listeners, follow her at Amy E. Walter on Twitter. I know Murphy and I do. Thank you. Always made smarter uh, listening to your analysis. Thanks. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Okay, I think it's time for... It's Listener Mailbag. Now, Gibbsy, if people want to send us a mailbag question, where do they email? Email us at hacksontap at gmail.com. And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts. Excellent. All right. Well, we've done our our hard work, and now let's answer some questions. Who do we got? Let me start, Murphy, with a question to you from Barbara. Can you discuss what you expect from the networks on November the 3rd? If the election is called by one network for one candidate, but the other networks don't, what will the significance of that be? What if Fox calls for Trump just to create havoc? Is there anything uh, in place to prevent chaos? Please discuss, and is there any role for citizens? That is a great question, Barbara. And because Axe isn't here, let me remind you to watch Gibbs and I on NBC, the network that you care about, not that commie outfit uh, over there where he's working. So seriously, it could be a bumpy night. Normally, the uh, the networks cover this thing like the Super Bowl. And to be fair, uh, it's a little bit more about them sometimes in the election because they got a lot of, you know, uh, um, news stuff and the image of their news brands and all that. But I think this year they're taking it very seriously. I've got an op-ed that's actually in the print edition 
of the Washington Post today. Yeah, librarians across America are so happy, but you can find it online where I argue that the networks, all of them, ought to release some of their absentee and early voter exit polling. Now, we all know, without doing the op-ed here for you and making all your ears hurt, that exit polls are where they have interviewers at key precincts asking people how they vote. Well, there's another aspect to it. The exit polling firms, it's mostly an outfit called Edison, though there's also a consortium with AP and Fox doing it a little differently. They do massive polling on the phone or online, like campaign pollsters do, in the final two weeks, even a little before, asking people if they voted, if so, how, and if they voted absentee. And those are large sample polls, larger than the average political poll. They can do 2,000 interviews or more in a state, and they're doing about 20 such states. They're also having actual interviewers at early polling places. So they have data about absentee voters. Now, it's not going to be perfectly accurate, but it's going to be a decent projection within three, four, five points. So my pitch is on election night, bring out doctor statistics and say, look, we polled in Michigan 1,100. I'm making this up, but it'll be a big number. 1,100 random voters who claim they voted by mail or absentee. We know within 3% that among that vote, our projection, we got to wait for the count to know, which could take a few days in Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. But we know they're going to be about 40% of the vote. And Joe Biden, in our projection, is leading between two and six points. So a little transparency to calm everybody down so they're not two sets of returns, one on election night from the polls and another to be figured out in a week from these mysterious, what do they mean? Trump will be making trouble. The Russians will be making trouble online. Let, let's have a little transparency. So that that is my pitch because I am worried that the data, particularly in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, will be foggy. Finally, the good news is Ohio, where Biden is a tiny bit ahead, and Florida, both count their absentee ballots in real time. States like Michigan and Wisconsin can't start counting till Election Day. So that means that the Florida results, the Ohio results, two states that if Trump can't win, he's toast, either one of them. Um, we're going to know a lot by late election night of the full vote in both those places. Another reason why, in my view, Florida and Ohio are so important. And that could help ameliorate all this crazy if Biden wins either one of them. And for you young listeners, stick around for the second hour where Mike will explain what it means to be in the print edition. <laughs> That's the thing you crumple up to make a campfire. But I'm proud to be there. All right. So, and a quick point on the way to a question for Gibbsy. A guy named Mike said that we only read questions that have suck uppery in it. No, Mike, what we actually do is punish criticism. So we're going to mute your question. <laughs> no, Mike, quickly, There's he's asking about a lot of fascinating early vote coming in. It shows intensity, but it doesn't really tell you who's going to win because it might be election day votes moving up. But it's a sign of tremendous turnout and intensity, and it's been better for the Democrats, probably a good sign for Biden. Harrison has a question for you, Gibbs. It's mid-October. Trump is mired in scandal, underwater in the polls. GOP candidates down the ticket are distancing themselves. Not enough. From him and media outlets are suggesting his campaign is doomed. I feel like I'm experiencing deja vu. What should we be confident that this just isn't a repeat of, cue the Halloween music, 2016 all over again? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> all right, let's start this answer by just say this with me. Everybody, listen, say this with me slowly. It's not 2016. 
It's not 2016. Now, it's hard to get away from that because, as Mike knows, every four years, we don't cover necessarily the current presidential election. We cover the most recent past presidential election in the calendar year that we're in. So you'd be forgiven for every time you see a poll or every time you see something about a state, somebody quickly reminds you, but remember in 2016, but remember in 2016. Let's go through a couple of the important differences. First and foremost, Trump is an incumbent, right? He owns the last four years. He owns particularly the last nine months uh, of this chaos. And he has never actually understood. You see this now where he's on, he calls into Fox News and he rants for 30 minutes about releasing Hillary's emails. Donald Trump thinks it's 2016 because quite frankly, he wishes he was running in 2016 all over again, but he's the incumbent. So that's really important. Um, the other thing, and I mentioned this earlier in the podcast, the, the favorability rating for Joe Biden is significant in this race because you can look at where Trump's approval rating is and you get a pretty good guess on where his current vote is, either nationally or in a state. And quite frankly, unless or until he changes how people view him as president, that number's not likely to get a whole lot higher. But if you look at Joe Biden's favorability ratings, 52, 53, 54% nationally in these swing states, tremendously important. The likability factor for Joe Biden is fundamentally different than it was for Hillary Clinton four years ago. So look, do I think this is still going to be a moderately close election? Absolutely. My admonition to in a place like Florida, I'll say this again, last seven races, 51 million votes cast. The difference between Democrats and Republicans, about 25,000 votes. Buckle up. It's still going to be close in a lot of places, probably closer than you'd like it or feel like it should be. That does not mean it's 2016. It, it, it simply isn't. It won't be. Uh, it doesn't mean that there aren't going to be voters that come out that didn't participate in 2016 that vote for Donald Trump. But it also it also means that you're probably going to find voters in places like Milwaukee and Detroit that decide they need to participate because they didn't in 2016. So don't get hung up on that. It's all going to be OK. The pilot has illuminated the fastened seatbelt sign. The, uh, the, the, the wind is going to get a little strong and, and, and it's going to get a little turbulent. But don't worry, they're going to land this plane just fine. Well said by the good Reverend Gibbs. That was perfect. I agree with every word and make sure to vote. I voted yesterday absentee by mail. I trust it here in California. Axe has already voted me twice in Cook County, so I'm a triple participant and uh, <laughs> proud of it. Early voting opens in uh, a lot more places tomorrow in Chicago, and I'm going to do the same thing that Murphy is. And I will let me join Murphy in saying it is um, it, it is beyond disheartening it's abhorrent that we're watching people stand in line for even more than an hour let alone six hours or nine hours or 11 hours or 12 hours that we have to give money to a charity that drives um, food to people standing in lines this is the united states of america right we're the we're supposed to be that shining city on a hill that beacon of democracy and we had better figure it out how to get our elections right uh, how to get people able to cast their votes and pick their leaders in a way that doesn't require them to sacrifice an entire day standing in line. Absolutely. You're on fire today, man. Absolutely. It makes me sick to see that. Like I said, I'm ready for the second hour. <laughs> well, unfortunately, we're under a federal consent order to spare our listeners any more than what we've done. But we will be back on, well, we record late Thursday. You probably hear it Friday morning or Thursday night for you hack insomniacs. But Thank you again for tuning in. Gibbs, always a pleasure. 
Murphy, it's always fun. Uh, for anybody out there listening, uh, call three friends and tell them to listen to Hacks on Tap. Yeah, absolutely. You can even, we have this, we have a fan inside, deep inside Apple, who sent us the secret message that when you're listening on Apple Podcasts, there's a little box in the lower right corner. You click, you can email the episode. So if you've got like a uh, relative you want to irritate or a friend you want to lose, just send them the episode. Maybe they'll get hooked or maybe they'll hate you forever. That's your call. But until Thursday, thanks for listening. Stay safe, Murphy. Take care, pal.